if you have your Bible this morning, go ahead and turn to Acts 13. We're going to be reading three short verses in Acts 13 this morning. But as you turn there, just want to say that uh, really excited to be here with the Christ Covenant Church family. I, I'm joined by my beautiful wife, Chobeth, who's right here on the front row, and then also my beautiful daughter, Evangeline, who is in the seventh grade, and she's got five younger siblings that are all back there. And so our, our family is just really grateful to be here. We're really grateful to uh, Josh and Hillary Cox. I think they'll be in the second service. But uh, an Airbnb did not work out for this weekend. And last minute, they received all eight of us into their home. And so we are, we, we realize that we're a real big crew to kind of, you know, just come into someone's home. But uh, they have been incredible hosts. And so we're just so thankful for them and so grateful to be here. Let's, uh, let's dive into to Acts 13. Uh, the guys this morning leading worship actually did an incredible job setting up my sermon and, and this text this morning. So really grateful for the time of, uh, time of worship from, from Jordan and the gang. So let's read Acts 13, verses 1 to 3. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Three very brief, short verses, and there's a whole lot that's going on here. And so I really had to like hone it down on, on what I was going to t uh, tackle here this morning because there's so many different rabbit trails, and this is such a transitional period and kind of redemptive history that uh, I, I really had to hone it in. You know, could have focused kind of on verse 1. You've got this church of Antioch and, and these five prophets and teachers that are named. And actually kind of an interesting group uh, of, of people that have come together to be the, the quote, prophets and teachers of, of this church of Antioch. Uh, you've got Saul and Barnabas who don't need much of an introduction. But then you've also got... Uh, these guys who we've never heard of, like, like Simeon and Lucius. And you have these guys who are actually from far off lands, it seems. And uh, uh, Simeon is called Niger, so he's got a darker skin. And of course, uh, and then Lucius is uh, Lucius. You've got, you've got him as well, and he's actually from North Africa. And so you have this mixture, and then Saul and Barnabas, obviously, kind of a Middle Eastern, uh, Central Asian. So you, you have like a, a, a collage of, of prophets and teachers that are coming together at this church of Antioch. So could focus there. I think the tendency is oftentimes to come to this verse and to focus on this whole like setting apart of Saul and Barnabas and sending them off. And that's typically where we go. It's, 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 a, it's an amazing moment in history from this church in Antioch and from the setting apart of Saul and Barnabas, the sending, the sending off of them. You have this incredible movement 
of people that are turning to Jesus, disciples that are being plant, uh, disciples that are being made, churches that are being planted in in a large part of the world, and I would say that that movement that was started through this church of Antioch actually continues to this day, and so it makes sense why oftentimes we come to this text and we focus on on those things, but we're not going to focus on those things this morning. This morning, I wanted to be—I really wanted to be a message for Christ's covenant for the church here, and I would say, especially, especially in light of of two things. Number one, we've got, as you guys know, the missions conference that's coming up next week. Christ's covenant is is a part of you know these missionaries coming together next week. Christ's covenant is a part of 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 setting them apart, of sending them off, and and hearing them. I think I think Jason's going to preach next week some on how we how we bring those back and we celebrate what the Lord is doing around the world as they as they come back. And so uh, so we've got the missions conference next week. Christ's covenant's a part of that, and I think Christ's covenant wants to continue to be a part of that. And to continue to grow in that respect of setting people apart and sending them off and then coming back to celebrate what the Lord's doing around the world. The second thing uh, is the new building. Uh, Jason made an announcement. There was an email that went out this week and and made an announcement this morning. Uh, A new building. I would say that this new building is potentially an Antioch moment in the life of Christ's covenant. And I'll kind of explain why I use the word potentially a little bit later. But this is a a new facility. The idea is that this is a new facility to expand Christ's covenant's capacity for ministry. I would say both here in Atlanta and then all around the world in other cities in the U.S., other cities uh, around the world. And so you've got this uh, potential kind of Antioch moment coming here. And so I think that Christ's covenant in a way, can be a church of Antioch, okay? I think this is part of why Jason asked me to preach this text today. I, I don't think it's just like a solid text, you know, on the lead up to the missions conference. I, I, think, I think part of this is that, um, part of this is that Christ's covenant can actually be a church of Antioch to do amazing thing for the Lord and his kingdom, and so, uh, you know, coming on staff at a church like this, all of this is like really exciting. And I hope you guys are excited. I hope you uh, are excited. I hope you feel a, kind of an excitement that's in the air that Christ's covenant wants to do amazing things for the Lord and for, and for his kingdom. Uh, Christ's covenant is also growing. I, I, can, I can tell this. Back in October of 2019, I was over uh, with you guys. Uh, Joe Beth and the kids were back in, in Thailand where we lived, and I had come back for another meeting and was able to be with you guys then in October 2019. And I think we were over at the middle school, and I, and I preached that Sunday, and there were probably 250, 300 people at that, at that time. I mean, fast forward like not even a year and a half later, and, and look, I, I think we have that many or more just in this one service, and then we've got a second service that's coming at 11 o'clock. And so Christ's covenant is, is growing with a growing church family. I think you have a, a growing number of us to do ministry in Atlanta and beyond. I think a growing number of us to serve needs in the city. Growing number of us to be mobilized to reach others for Jesus, to be sent out 
disciples to be made, churches to be planted. I think with a growing number of, of people, you also got a growing, uh, growing finances and resources to kind of support all of these things. So these things are all good and very exciting things. However, I kind of want us to take a step back from the whole setting apart, sending off this really exciting ministry stuff, and I want us to observe what the Church of Antioch is doing leading up to that point. And I would say in this respect, verse, the first part of verse 2 in this text is key. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, and I'll cut it off there. So what were they doing when the Spirit speaks to them? This is what I want us to see. This is what I want us to kind of focus on this morning. What are they doing when the Spirit speaks to them? They're worshiping. They're coming together and they're worshiping and they're fasting. I, I think that if we, if Christ's covenant gets this whole worship thing right, each one of us individually, and then I would say corporately as a, as a church body, then I really feel like Christ's covenant can be used greatly by the Lord for his kingdom purposes to do amazing things in, in Atlanta and other cities and, and around the world. And the Lord will do amazing things in each one of our lives. So in this respect, I, I've got, I've got basically have three things that I want us to look at in, in the text and, uh, Two of those are, are kind of an observation about this worship that's going on. And then, one of, and then the last one is kind of a result of what comes out of that worship. So the first thing is that worship is first an internal matter before it's an external act. Okay? Worship is first an internal matter before it's an external act. Hang on to that for just a second. And I just want to ask you, like, when you hear the word worship, what do you think about? How would you, how would you define worship? You know, I, I think it's a word that we toss around a whole lot. Uh, we talk about worship service and, and worship leader. You know, Jordan's a great worship leader. And we talk about, uh, we talk about you know, I really had a great time in the, in the worship service today. And we throw around that word, but it can become kind of nebulous. Like, like kind of, it's, it's a little hard. I mean, we all kind of know what we're talking about. You know, it's when we're singing and we're praising and we know all that, but it's, it's a little hard to, to put our finger on at times. And so worship, basically, at a basic level, what worship is, is it's basically ascribing worth or value to something or someone above all other things. You're worshiping that something or that someone above, above all other things. And so we can do this with all kinds of things. We don't have time to go into all the potential idols that we might set up in our lives. But we all come together, and I, and I think the idea is, is that we're lifting up God and what he's done and, and what he will do, uh, and, and we're lifting him up, and we're ascribing worth or value to God above all other things. And so uh, we can worship through the, the, the preaching of God's word and through hearing it. Obviously, we worship through song and through praising God. We can worship through repentance, uh, through, through just coming to the Lord and saying, I've, I've been wrong. I need to change. 
And I, and I think that there's an act of worship there. We can worship through giving. You know, we give because we're saying, God, you're more valuable. You and your purposes, your church, and, the, and what you're doing is more valuable than something else where I could put this money. We can worship through our daily lives as well. This is not something, worship is not an event that happens on Sunday morning. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an internal heart condition that can, that can continue on all throughout the week. And I think, that's, I, I think that's part of the heartbeat of Christ's covenant is that for this not to be a Sunday-only church where you come up and you just show up and you worship on Sunday. No, but that, that your life is changed and that every day throughout the week where you are in your job or where you are in your home or among your neighbors or wherever you are, you have this internal devotion and this, this inward devotion towards the Lord to say he's more important than everything else in my life. And it begins to color all of your life and your daily life and, and everything that you do. So, we see here in Acts 13 that the church of Antioch is, is doing this external form of worship, right? So they've all come together, and the church has come together with these five kind of prophet teacher guys that are with them, and they're, and they're worshiping the Lord. Um, they're worshiping the Lord. What it also says there is, is that they're worshiping the Lord and fasting, okay? And I think this fasting part kind of... It, it kind of points to this inward, this inward devotion. And that's the point I'm trying to make here is that, is that worship is first an internal matter before it's an external act. And so I, I think the fasting part uh, points to that. Fasting, I would say, falls under worship. I think fasting is a part of worship. Fasting is basically intentionally denying your body the very thing that God designed to sustain your body. And it's basically uh, saying to God that, God, you are more important than the very food that I need to survive. That I'm more dependent on you. It's communicating the message to God that I'm more dependent on you than I am on food. And so we refrain from that in order to, in order to have this inward devotion towards the Lord. You know, intermittent fasting has kind of become a real popular thing among some of you health buffs. And, um, you know, it, it's, it can be good for health reasons. So, so we hear, you know, and then five years down the road, it'll be bad for your health and, and all that. But right now, it's good for your health. And so people do, people do this intermittent fasting. And, um, you know, you don't do an intermittent fast and then kind of have the thought that, like, well, I think... I think that kind of counts as like a, a fast for God too. No, it doesn't work like that. You're not like scoring points with God as you do like an intermittent fast. Uh, fasting, it all has to do with an, an, an inward devotion towards the Lord. To say, to say, God, you're more important than anything else in my life. So, uh, you know, we come before, Lord, come before the Lord with, with, with pure hearts, and I think this is where worship starts. This is where worship starts. If you remember in uh, Matthew 15, you don't have to turn there. I'll just, I'll just read it for us. But in Matthew 15, uh, the disciple, uh, sorry, the Pharisees come to Jesus, 
and they're asking him a question about uh, their disciples, uh, Jesus' disciples that are breaking this Jewish tradition, and they're always getting real heated when they feel like any kind of Jewish tradition is being broken. And uh, Jesus comes to them and he responds. Listen to what he says to them in Matthew 15, verses 7 through 9. He says, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You see what's happening? The Pharisees come to them. And they think they're upholding this, this holy law. And Jesus says to them, you guys are hypocrites because you honor the Lord with your lips. But your hearts are actually far from the Lord. And you see, you see what it's called here. This is called vain worship. It means that their worship was, it was empty. It was hollow. It was meaningless. It was done in vain. There was no purpose to it. You know, we, uh, Joe Beth and I and the kids, we lived in Indonesia for about uh, 12 years. And where we were for the vast majority of that time was a, a Muslim culture. And the city was probably 96% Muslim. And we were there working with Indonesian church planters trying to plant churches among Muslims, win them to Jesus and plant churches among them. Uh, it, it was it was interesting to witness their how they how they played out, and, and I'm not saying this is true of all Muslims, but for I would say a vast majority of the Muslims that we encountered, I think that they were just like these Pharisees, and they would pray five times a day and do it very religiously, waking up very early in the morning at about four or five in the morning to start their prayers, and they'd finish those prayers at the end of the day. They would uh, give, give alms. You, you give a portion of your, of your income away. They would, uh, would do different things like this. They would always go to the mosque on Friday, and yet their hearts seemed to be so far from God. I mean, basically what they were doing is they were just, they were just, carrying out the motions, you know, the daily routine, the weekly routine of what it means to be a Muslim. I'm a Muslim because I do these certain things. And I think you guys can kind of see the analogy. I mean, take it over to America and we, we, we still have this real strong, uh, I would say problem of cultural Christianity where, you know, you, you kind of do the church thing. You might even do the small group thing, you know, in midweek or whatever, but you're, but you're just kind of carrying out the motions. And, and you, you come and, you know, the, the music plays and like you're, you're singing with your lips and you're not, maybe not too excited about it, but it's like, well, it's, it's a good thing for me to show up and, and just do this. Or, or maybe, maybe your wife is happy that you came, uh, came with her or whatever, and you're essentially honoring God with your lips, but your heart is actually far from the Lord. And so I, I, would, I would just ask you, I would ask each of you, how are you doing internally? How are you doing internally? When you come to church, when the songs are playing, how are you doing? What's your, what's your heart like at that moment? Reflect on that. 
You can, you can pull the wool over the eyes of people in here, but it's, it's not worth anything. You can't pull the wool over God's eyes. He sees hearts. And he knows how you are. He knows how your heart is. And I think the idea is that we come together as a church family and all of us have this inward devotion toward the Lord where we focus on the Lord and our attentions on the Lord and we have that, we have that idea of fasting just continually in our lives that, that God is more important than, than anything else. And so God delights in those who truly worship the Lord from this internal devotion. And I, I would just just say to kind of wrap up this point that when inter- when this internal devotion towards the Lord is happening and, and when we have this this idea that that God you're more important than anything else in my life when we have this I would say external worship is completely effortless you just show up the songs are being led you're just gonna praise because your heart's already there you're already, you already have this, this, this heart of worship to, towards the Lord. And so when the, when, the, when the songs are playing, when the preaching of the word is happening, it's just going to be resonating with your soul. And I think when, when Christ's covenant comes together, we have those internal hearts that are just prepared for worship. I think the times of worship are going to be even that much more wonderful. Second thing to point out about worship from this text is that worship is meant to have a corporate aspect to it. Worship is meant to have a corporate aspect to it. We see Antioch here. They are corporately and collectively showing their devotion to God. Uh, we, elsewhere, we see this in the Bible, uh, this kind of corporate worship. And we'll just flip over real quick to, uh, to Revelation 7. And uh, many of you are familiar with this passage, one that we use in, in missions all the time. But in Revelation 7, kind of an envision after Jesus has come back. And it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So I mean, you get this picture of the end times and people from all nations and tribes and languages that are gathered around the throne of Jesus. And they're just in, in, in exaltation, lifting up the name of Jesus, exalting the Lamb. This is where, this is where history is going. And, and, and we, as a, as, a, as a church family, we can, we can have kind of a microcosm of what this looks like and, and to say, this is where history is pointing to. It's pointing to this moment, this, this corporate moment of worship when everybody's going to be surrounding the, lamb, the, the, the throne of the Lamb to worship him. Um, you know, I, I realize that Christ's covenant gathers together and, and sings together. And I, I would say what we experienced this morning was, was worship. I mean, it was very worshipful. It's, it's very God honoring. I, I love that song. Holy, holy, holy. I know it's a little old school, but it still just touches my heart every time. Uh, because it's just, it's just so God exalting, God honoring. So I, I know that, I know that, uh, Christ's covenant comes together, and we worship, and we sing together, but I, I feel like the church in the West, and I would say in particular in America, has a lot to learn about the corporate nature of worship, okay? 
we've lived in Asia the last 13 years, and it was interesting to see the difference to, to actually live and kind of get engulfed in a, in a different culture that I would say is a more collectivist or a more group-oriented society than what we have here in the West, which is much more of an individualistic society. We're very individualized in, uh, in, in the West and especially in America. You know, we lived in Indonesia and Thailand, as, as Jason mentioned. And in both of those countries, uh, you see that, like, they make decisions in groups. You process information in groups. And you have this much higher sense of responsibility for those that are, that are in your group. You kind of see that play out. We had a, a funny time when, when Jason one time came over and was a speaker at a missions conference that we were doing in, in the city where we lived in Indonesia. And at the end of the service, it was kind of getting late in the night, and our leadership team, me and a bunch of Indonesians, and Jason was kind of on the peripheral, and I was translating a little bit for him, and he was... Uh, Jason was kind of asking, like, what are, what, what are we doing? And I said, well, we're trying to make a decision. And it was kind of getting late into the night. And Jason was like, well, wh- why, why, why can't we just make the decision? And I was like, it's just not the way it happens here. It's different over here. Everyone in the group has to, like, come to the decision. And finally, Dee says, well, here, just let me make the decision for him. <laughs> and I was like, no, no, we can't just do that. And so it was, it, was, it, was, it was West meets the East, and it, it was just a very different uh, way of kind of approaching all, all this decision-making. And so it was interesting kind of, kind of living in that, uh, in that culture. We've also got a guy, Barnabas, who's right here in the text in Acts 13. And Barnabas is here. He's about to be sent off. But if we, if we rewind like a few chapters in, in Acts, you've got Barnabas in Acts 4, And what he's doing is he goes and he sells his land and he gives it to the apostles to meet needs of those in the church. An amazing act of generosity. And I I think in the biblical culture, I think you've got more of this group mentality, more of this collectivist society where they have a they have a higher sense of responsibility uh, for each other. And, And I would say that in in the West, in America, um, we've become a very individualistic society. I, I think there's, I think there's reasons for this. Uh, we we had the uh, modernistic period, modernism uh, throughout the 20th century, and I think throughout the 20th century, kind of the mantra was was progress, progress. You know, the world is always getting better. Everything's getting better. And then what happened? We had two world wars, and we had the bloodiest century recorded in history. And I think everyone kind of became disillusioned with this whole mantra of progress. Wait, how are we progressing and everything is getting better, but it seems like the world is going in the opposite direction. And so what did we do? Rather than turn to God as an answer or the answer, we turned inward and we said, okay, now self is the answer. And this is what we did through postmodernism. We, we started to look inward and truth became relativized. It's what's true for me is true for me. What's true for you is true for you. And I think we're still very much struggling with this in America today. And so we learn to primarily look out for ourselves. We make big decisions by ourselves. We don't need the group to tell us what decisions to make. We, we acquire wealth by ourselves and, and use that for ourselves and for our immediate family. And it's difficult for us to part with that, even with needs that we might see. 
I'm not saying that the group-oriented society is all good and, and individualistic society, America's all bad. Honestly, there's really positives and negatives if we could dive down into that. There's really positive and negatives on both of those. But I think one unfortunate result of this individualistic mindset is that we started to carry out this individualistic mindset in our faith and in the life of the church. One example that I'll give you, we used to have uh, people that would come over and do uh, uh, like these retreats for us when we were in Indonesia. And this church would come over and do, do a retreat for us. And they introduced us to this way of worship that they called audience of one. You guys m might have heard it. I think it kind of got popular that it was an audience of one. And I, I think, I, I, I mean, I know what they m were meaning, that, it's, that, it, that we're getting together and we're focusing on God, oh, on focusing on God only. And I'm not suggesting that, like, as you sing, you need to be, like, focused on your neighbor, but we really don't come to church with this audience of one mindset, that it's, it's you and God, that you just come, and as long as you come and just f have this focus on God, you're good. And you and God are good. I, I, I think COVID showed us this in a, in a real way. Uh, we all tried to watch, like, the worship service online. And I, I'm not saying that you can't worship through a worship service online, but let's all admit, it's different. It's really tough. You know, Jordan's an incredible uh, worship leader and he would sing the songs and I remember watching some of them it's just it's a little hard to get into it there's something about being here there's something about relationships that we have with one another there's almost like a, a fuel that's added to the fire when we get together and, and we and we worship as a as a corporate body I'll, I'll give you one more practical example I can almost guarantee you that uh, there's a married couple or two in here that you probably had a disagreement this morning before you came to church. I don't know why. It always happens, seems to happen on, on, on Sunday mornings. But uh, maybe it was something with the kids. Maybe, maybe one spouse was taking longer than another spouse or, or whatever, and you, you get in the car and, you know, you maybe exchange a crossword or, uh, or maybe you're just, you know, kind of silent and kind of giving the silent treatment or whatever. I would say when that happens or when that happened this morning, when that happens, what does it do for the time of worship? What does it do when you, when you try to sing the songs? It's really difficult. It's hard at that moment to have an audience of one. Because you're not right with your spouse. And I think there's something to this, this corporate this corporate nature of worship that we can all learn from and that we can grow in. Our relationships, our interactions, the way we relate to each other, it really matters for worship. And I think when the people of God gather together in right relationships with God and with others to worship, and all of us have this inward devotion that says, God, you're more important than anything in my life, and I've got right relationships with those around me, that you've got a very powerful thing that can happen. 
And I think this is what we're, I think this is what we're seeing in our text in, in, in Acts 13. When the church of Antioch comes together and they're worshiping and they're fasting. And I think that when a church is doing that, I think it can actually lead to an Antioch moment. This is the third part that we're going to see this morning is uh, basically answering the question, what happens in this text when the church worships? Let's just look at it. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. So as the church is worshiping, the Holy Spirit speaks. This is the time that the Holy Spirit speaks. Antioch gathers together in right relationship with God and one another, and they have this inward devotion toward the Lord, and the Spirit moves. The Spirit speaks. The Spirit is leading and guiding their church. Don't we want to see the Spirit continue to move in the, in the life of Christ's covenant? Don't we want to see the Spirit continue to speak to Christ's covenant? And I would say collectively speak to Christ's covenant, but also individually. And when you come into this place, there's something different about it. There's a different spirit about it. Because the spirit of God is coming and he's, he's speaking and he's changing lives. And people are becoming more inwardly devoted towards the Lord. Don't we want to do things where we can, we can honestly say the Spirit of God is behind this decision? And I think that's, you know, why I was suggesting earlier that the new building is potentially an Antioch moment. And the big question is not, is this building good for our church or not? The question is, is the Spirit behind the purchase of this building for the life of Christ's covenant? And if the spirit is behind this, I would say we are on the cusp of this Antioch moment in history where the Lord can use this facility to do amazing things in the city of Atlanta, in other cities, and around the world. And you know, it all starts with hearts that are devoted to the Lord. It all starts with individual hearts that are inwardly committed to the Lord, devoted to the Lord, growing in the Lord. And then that external worship that can actually be expressed in so many different ways will start to happen. Let's have a time of prayer. Father, uh, I thank you so much for a church that gathers together and truly seeks to worship the Lord, truly seeks to ascribe that worth and value that you are worthy of receiving. But God, I know that in a room full of people of this size, there are some that, that come today and, and maybe, their, maybe their hearts are not quite there. Maybe they haven't experienced that inward devotion. 
Maybe they're setting up idols in their life and, and, and worshiping those things more than they are the, the creator God who sent his son to die on behalf of us. So God, I, I just I pray and ask, Lord, would your spirit speak? Would your spirit move? Would your spirit lead and guide each of us that's in this room? How wonderful it is when the presence of God touches us. So God, we just pray that your spirit would come down, you would meet us, or that we would just have hearts that are devoted to you and we would worship both individually and corporately as a body. And that, Lord, you would be honored by that. That you would be glorified. And that we would give you the right place that you deserve. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.